And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, we'll go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for this night. Um, we love you, Father. You're everything that we need, Lord. And uh, we just come to you tonight uh, humbly. We need you uh, to just do something in our hearts, Father God. We need you to revive us, Lord. I, I know that, Lord, anything I'm going to say in and of myself, it, it's worthless. It's, it's, there's no use to it whatsoever. So, God, I'm just begging you tonight. Please uh, take over my lips tonight. Help me say what you want me to say and nothing else. Lord, I pray you'll take over our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us receive your word. Help us uh, be careful to hear your word the way that we should, the way that you intend for us to, Father. And I pray that you will, um, Father, will you please just do a miracle. Please bring revival in our hearts, Lord. Just let us um, abide in Christ as his word abides in us and Give us grace to understand what you what you desire from our lives, Father God, and to submit to that. Uh, Lord, please make our, our lives a, a loving walk with you where we just walk hand in hand with you all day long and you direct every decision, every single step, every single, uh, every single thought, everything we do. Um, tonight, I pray that the name of your son Jesus would be glorified because after all that he's done, and just because of who he is, Father, um, I mean, he just deserves it. He's just better than we are. He's... He's more than we are, Father God. And I pray that you'd help us humble ourselves and see that and give Him all the glory that He deserves tonight as we study Him and we study what He's done and we study who He is and we study what He commands and what He offers and, and what He deserves, Father. I just pray that you give us grace to, uh, to take this all in the way you want us to and to, uh, to be changed by it, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So. The last time we visited Matthew's uh, gospel, we saw Jesus perform some pretty amazing miracles that we don't see every day. On the way to heal Jairus' uh, daughter, a woman who had suffered an issue of blood for 12 years, which had made her unclean, where she couldn't even uh, approach the, the temple and approach the presence of God, according to the Jewish faith, she reaches out in faith, grabs Jesus' robe, and she's, of course, healed. Uh, then Jesus raised Jairus' dead daughter back to life. And we read in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 9, and the report of this went through all that district. The word of these miracles spread quickly. Um, the word for district here could be translated to mean the entire globe, which I think is noteworthy because at this point in time, you know, the message of these events has spanned the entire globe. I mean, in some way of thinking, the gospel of Jesus Christ, including these miracles, has probably hit every continent and nearly every place on the planet. There may be some unreached people. Surely there are people all over the world who have no access to the gospel right now. We pray against that. We pray that God raises up laborers to go in those places. We pray the word of God will hit those places. Hearts will be changed. Um, in places that right now at this moment as we sit here, there is no access to the gospel so they can be changed. We pray that God will do that. But in one way of thinking, yes, this has reached the entire globe. But in the context that Matthew is writing here, this word is translated as region or district. So perhaps those who saw the woman uh, healed of her affliction in the streets uh, near Jairus' house spread the word. Or perhaps um, it was the mourners at the house 
that Jesus had put out of of uh, Jairus' house that went and spread the word. And as Jesus was no doubt conversing with Jairus and his family after having revived the girl back to life, the news of his raising her from the dead was just spreading like wildfire through the immediate neighborhood and then the community and then the rest of Capernaum. I mean, can you imagine if you lived in Capernaum and all of a sudden within just a matter of hours, this man named Jesus, whom many people had heard of before uh, because of the things he'd done in other places. He comes in and he has healed this woman who's been this way for 12 years and all of a sudden he raises somebody from the dead. And remember, it's not just anybody, it's Jairus. And if you remember who Jairus was, he's a ruler of the synagogue. He was very influential in the Jewish religious uh, system in that town. Everybody knew him. Everybody uh, would have recognized his name as this goes out. Can you imagine how people would have been literally running down the streets to tell their neighbor, knocking on doors saying, okay, have you heard what just happened? You won't believe this. It spread like wildfire through the town. Then we see in verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, literally as Jesus left Jairus' house, the streets that he walked were at that moment buzzing with word of what had just been done. And there's no telling how many people by this moment had heard these miracles. Presumably, nearly everyone in the immediate area, in the immediate neighborhood or the surrounding area around that neighborhood had already heard the news because, like we said, news had spread quickly. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. As these men cried out, they referenced Jesus as the son of David. Um, this was, of course, a messianic title. The Jews had long been waiting for uh, the Messiah, who was to be a descendant of King David, to come and deliver them from their oppressors. And at this point, in this context, with the despised rule of the Roman government weighing heavy on the shoulders of the entire nation, there was kind of an expectation among the Jewish people that the Messiah could appear at any time. Very similar to the way that, you know, if you've been raised in church very long, every single generation has thought that the end of time was coming when? Soon. Like during our lifetime, right Joe? Every time you hear about... Uh, yeah, like right now. Every time you hear about the economy about to collapse or something like that, it was like, oh, it's, it's the end times. Every time it's, you know, of course it's in Mississippi, but every time it's December and you have a hot day, oh, it's the seasons out of way, it's the end of time, you know. Uh, and, and everybody thinks that it's going to happen in their lifetime because, of course, nobody's ever had it worse than you've had it because it's you. And, you know, it's never been a more important time in history because... You're here, and for the same reason that mankind used to think the earth was the center of the universe because we live here, we think everybody's always taught that the end of time, that Jesus is coming back like during my lifetime because surely I'm going to be one of the ones caught up in a twinkling of an eye. Um, kind of in the same scope there, that's kind of the way the, the nation of Israel felt about the return of the Messiah at this time. And these two men were acknowledging Jesus to be that Messiah. You know, it's, it's, interesting, excuse me, it's interesting that while many who witnessed uh, the miracles of Jesus with their own eyes didn't gain this revelation, these blind men clearly saw the truth. Do you catch that? People who literally with their eyes saw 
him do these amazing things didn't get it. But these two guys who hadn't seen anything maybe in their entire life physically saw clearly who he was. These blind men were granted the eyes of faith while others with excellent physical vision remained spiritually blind. If Jesus references this kind of scenario in John 9, 39, saying of the Pharisees, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And of course, those that could see who were blind were the Pharisees. You know, this, I think that this ought to kind of cause us all to pause for just a minute. We should all kind of take a breath right here and think. Um, you know, you can hear everything from extravagant tales of people supposedly going to heaven and then coming back to people having personal visions of Jesus in our world today. These are not to be the basis of our faith. In fact, I would tell you they can't be. Such supernatural phenomena cannot be the basis of your faith. There's no way of confirming such things to begin with. If some kid says, hey, I went to heaven and come back, how how do we know he's not lying? There's no way of confirming that. In fact, many cult leaders and leaders of other religious systems have often claimed such grandiose personal visions And that's what they built their religion on. They built their cult on. They built their belief system on. I saw Christ. I saw God. I saw an angel. I saw all these things, so listen to me. Yet all these are false. They've all proven to be false over time. Now, you and I are not to count on a personal experience of seeing Jesus perform a miracle or having a conversation with Him face to face so that we can believe. That's not where we're supposed to be trying to gain our faith from. Thankfully, Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter wrote to the church saying, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. So, If we cannot see Him perform a miracle or experience a personal vision or something like that, how can we believe in Christ today? If these people who literally with their eyes saw Him and they didn't believe, how can we who have no opportunity to physically see Christ come through those doors and do some kind of miracle, how can we ever hope to believe? We believe the same way these two blind men did. We're granted eyes of faith because we hear. These men were blind. How did they know that Jesus had just done these miracles? They heard. They heard other people spreading the word of what Jesus had just done. And when they heard it, God sparked faith in their soul. When they heard it, the Holy Spirit of God lit a fire of faith implanted a seed of faith in their heart that had not been there before. The Bible says this, says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I actually heard somebody quoting that when I first walked in tonight. I don't think he was looking at my notes. I think it just kind of happened, but I took it as a good thing. Today, anyone who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ may very well be granted open eyes in their heart. 
They may gain eyes of faith so that they might behold Jesus as He is. Not just a miracle worker, not just a teacher. They'll see Him as the Messiah and the Savior of all men. So what was it that caused these men to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah when so many others failed to discern this fact? Like, What is it that even drew them to listen? What is, what is it that even drew them to take notice of what they were hearing and faith be stirred in their heart? It's kind of an important question, isn't it? What is it that will cause anybody to eventually come to faith? Or let me ask this, what would be the first step that God would use? What's it look like when God starts implanting or injecting that faith into somebody's heart? Again, Matthew points out that these men had an affliction. They were blind. We don't know they were blind their whole life, but they, you know, they didn't say they weren't. They might have been blind their whole life and been blind for a year. We don't know. But at that moment, they had a problem. They were blind. Now, I want us to think about something. At this time in history, guys, this was even more of an affliction than it would be for anybody today. Just think about the differences for a second. Today, if one is blind, he can still gain an education. Kyle, we go play in basketball. You go play a school in Jackson called Mississippi School for the Deaf. And it's combined with another school called Mississippi School for the Blind. They get just as good an education as anybody else. Perhaps better. There's a lot of money and resources that goes into that school, and they don't have as many students as a lot of schools do. Someone who is blind in our world today, he can earn a living, can he? He can find something to do. My father-in-law, white tiger buddy over there, he works or worked, I think, with a guy who used to put together small engine motors, and he was blind as a bat. That's impressive to me, but you can still get a job doing something like that or, or something else. You could do a lot of things in our world today and still be blind. He can participate in sports. The school we just talked about, Mississippi School for the Blind, they had a very, very good wrestling team. There's sports you can participate in and be blind in our world today. He wasn't that way in the first century A.D., there were no special schools, there were no C&I dogs, and there was no Braille that hadn't been created yet. These men would have been beggars. They would have been considered on the lower end of the social and economic spectrum. And also, as we've said before, to the Jews, the fact that they had such an affliction like blindness meant that they were most likely under punishment by God because they were obviously worse sinners than everybody else, or at least most people. So, the truth is that this blindness hurt these men financially, physically, socially. They would have been humiliated as both beggars and those seen in the religious community as sinners who were cut off from God. And it was this affliction that humbled them to the point that they knew they needed help. Guys, what I'm saying is they were willing to listen. They sat in the streets and they knew they needed help. They were ready to pounce on any opportunity that looked valid. Any, any valid opportunity that would come by that may uh, gain for them any kind of rescue, any kind of redemption, any kind of healing, they were ready because they knew how bad off they were. They knew they needed healing. And they knew they needed mercy. And when they heard the truth about Jesus, they were granted eyes of faith so that they could see that He was the one and the only one who could deliver them. 
In verse 28, we see, When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Unlike the account of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus uh, at Jericho uh, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, upon hearing the cries of these two men, he didn't stop. Did you notice that about the story? Did you notice that about the text? Jesus is walking down the street. They start screaming out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Most of us would think Jesus is going to stop right there, turn around, and heal these guys, right? That seems to be what Jesus would do. At other times, that is how he did it. In this case, he did not. He kept walking down the street, and he was going to a house to sit down. There's a reason for that. There's something God wants us to see here. In at least the last 70 years or so in the United States, there seems to have been a shift in the understanding within the church of what coming to the Lord actually looks like. There's been a shift. If you look at history, if you look at church history before at least the last century, I'm being, I'm being very generous with these years here, but at least the last century of the American church, if you look before that time, it seems like coming to Christ might have been understood in a much different way than the American church does even today. Decades ago, churches began to want salvation to be something that is instant, and it's easily recognized, and it's easily tallied up and recorded. The reason for that, especially if you go back to around the 1950s or so, America was enjoying one of the most prosperous times on the world stage that it had ever had. And we just got used to being the best at stuff. And we wanted to be the, we wanted to be the best at everything. And how do you be the best at being a church? Well, you come up with some criteria that you think you can top other people at. So what they did is they started counting how many people supposedly came to Christ. How many baptisms you had and all these kinds of things. And that became the criteria you went by. And if that's the criteria that you go by, all of a sudden things can start getting out of whack because what's the best way to help your score, so to speak? You start making scoring points a lot easier. You start watering down the standard. The church started relying on statistics to give them a sense of success instead of the hard and time-consuming things like Discipling members. Discipleship. Discipling members who would, over time, bear fruit. In order to gain a high number of salvations, many began to water down the understanding of what coming to Christ would look like. And because it's easier to get someone emotional and have them storm down to the altar and say a prayer and get baptized than to have them seek the Lord for maybe a year or more before coming to true faith and repentance... Many began taking the quick and easy route. And the problem is this led to high numbers. It led to proud churches. And unfortunately, it led to many false converts who would come to church for a little while. Like we said, storm the altar in emotional fit. And then they never consistently came to church again after a short period of time. Have we heard that story before? Yes. We've seen it in our own church before. It's not that we've tried to preach any kind of easy believism. I think anybody that's come here consistently and really listened knows that is the last thing that we're preaching. 
We're not making it too hard. We're making it biblical. But we still have people that over the years, I've seen it, you've seen it, have come down here in an emotional fit, said some prayer, got wet, and you have not seen them since. Right? No discipleship, no signs, no, no fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? This is a travesty. Traditionally, if you look back in church history, even in American church history, from the beginning, when the pilgrims first came over, the Puritans first came over, traditionally the path to faith seems to often be much more of a journey than we like to take it at. If you read the biographies of men such as Edwards and Newton and Wesley, you see the accounts of men who fell under conviction and sought the Lord for quite some time before believing themselves to have actually been born again or at least having been assured of salvation. Such was the case of these blind men. They cried out for mercy and the Lord continued on. They didn't say, hey, we've cried out, so we know we've been made whole while they were still blind. That would have been kind of ludicrous, wouldn't it? What if they had followed the same plan that a lot of churches like to conduct people down? Just come down and cry out and then no matter what, Regardless of what happens in your life, regardless of what changes or doesn't change, you can stop now, you've got it because you cried out and that's all it takes. What if these men would have cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and they never got their sight, but they went home still feeling their way, groping down the streets because they cried out. How beneficial would that be? None. But they didn't stop in the streets. They followed him into the house. Now, whatever God's purpose was in this, they had to pursue Him more. That's the point we're driving at. That Jesus, I think, what God is making us see is that even though they had a, even though they had an understanding who He was, even though they obviously had some degree of faith, God still required them to pursue Him more. That's not outside of God's word. That's right in line with God's word. We'll see in just a minute. Their need drew them. God granted them faith in Christ Jesus and they had to seek Him until they truly found Him or until they made contact with Him. And if you're listening and you've settled for less than a changed life, you know what I would encourage you to do is don't stop in the streets. Follow Jesus to the place where He will meet with you. The Bible says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. And let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Why? For His going out as sure as the dawn, He will come to us as the showers and the spring rains that water the earth. Let us press on to know the Lord, knowing that His coming is as sure as the spring rains. Maybe not instant, may have to wait till spring. But we still press on now to know Him, correct? Your healing is not in your crying out. That's one of the great errors that we've had. Your healing is not really in your crying out in and of itself. Your healing is in being touched by the Lord Jesus who will respond to those who cry out and those who follow after Him in faith. And if you're hearing this and you're under conviction, I want you to be encouraged. You know, that conviction of your need for salvation, that's from God. That conviction that Jesus is the only one who can save you and change you, that's from God. 
And just because you don't have assurance yet, just because you don't see a great change in your life yet, and just because you don't see that He has saved you yet, don't give up. Keep seeking Him. Keep chasing Him. Follow Him down the street until He leads you into that private place where He will meet with you. There He will touch your sin-sick heart and make you whole. Emotions are fine, but don't settle for just an emotional fit at the altar. Follow Jesus with your need until He has touched you and until he has really changed your situation. And for those who are born again, we need to ask ourselves if we who can now see are following as well as these blind men did. Or blind men did, excuse me. Are there needs in your life that you don't really think Jesus can provide for? Now, of course, none of us are going to openly say that. Nobody in here is going to say, yeah, I've got this need in my life and I just don't really believe Jesus can meet that need. I don't really believe Jesus will meet that need. None of us are going to say that. I'm not asking what you'll say. I'm asking what you really think. I'm asking how you really live. I'm asking what you really believe deep down in your soul. I'm going to be honest with you. This is very convicting to me. Very convicting to me. Because there can be things that when I just say them out loud, they don't even seem that big. But after I've thought about them for about a month and I've kind of worked myself up over them and I have chewed on the fat of doubt and let those juices flow over my soul and I haven't really visited how, you know, the, the, the view of who my Lord really is. I've just been letting it marinate in doubt for a while. I can look at a lot of things and seem like my faith is so small that I really have to question, do I really trust my Lord here? My point is not that I'm the standard. My point is that I think we're all that way. And I think we're all going to be really honest. I think we should take a moment to pause and think, am I believing? If I who have been given open heart eyes to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ Jesus, who is the image of God, who created everything. If I can have or if you could have times of doubt where we think there are things still that are beyond the grasp of our Lord. Or maybe that his goodness has just run out and he's just not willing. There's no chance that he's willing to touch this and we're just going to struggle with it just because for the rest of our life. If that's the case, how is it these blind men could believe so much and we can sometimes seem to believe so little? We claim to trust Him, but when the problem's big enough, or if it seems to last long enough, we wear out and we lose hope. That's another thing. Anybody in here ever been sick for a long period of time? Anybody in here ever struggled? I'm not talking about licentiousness. I'm talking about you truly struggled with a sin for a long period of time. And that may be a relative term. To you it may be a week. To others it may be a year. I mean, you struggled for a long period of time. And you just you wanted victory. You were torn up about it. You just couldn't seem to get victory. You, came to, you seemed to keep falling. You know, the longer we suffer, all of a sudden, we, we seem to be a less hardy group of folks, don't we? Let's be honest. I'm that way too, y'all. You let me get in a situation where, number one, I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. That's the big thing. Or number two, if I can see a light in the tunnel, it seems way off, like so small that I start to think I won't last long enough to get there. Then all of a sudden my faith becomes challenged. Your faith becomes challenged. We start crumbling. Or to use a scriptural term, we start to have 
drooping hands and weak knees. We start to trudge instead of walk. We start to creep instead of run. Maybe you're married to an unbeliever and you've almost given up hope that they'll ever come to Christ. My exhortation to you is keep believing. Maybe you have a wayward child. Keep crying out to the Lord for them. Just keep on. Maybe you've been in physical or mental or even relational hardship for a long time. And it's just drained you. You know, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe you feel sick in your heart because your hope that God would rush in instantly. The first time I cried out or the first week I cried out or the first month I cried out. Or God, I really meant it for so long and I was so sincere. God, those, those hot tears that I cried, that wasn't fake. You can't tell me that was fake, God. I meant that. Where are you? And because the, the rescue doesn't seem to come as fast as we think it should come, we start to think, well, it's just not coming at all. Don't grow weary in the well-doing of trusting your Lord who died for you. God has done nothing but prove to be faithful to us. He just doesn't promise any kind of time frame. Amen? Keep pursuing in faith, trusting that He will grant, listen to me, He will grant the best outcome. I did not say the outcome you prayed for. Joseph, there's been so many things in my life that I sincerely at the time prayed for. And now I look back and I sincerely thank God that he said no. It wasn't like we like to say a yes or a maybe or a wait. It was a flat out no. I will not give you that. I will never give you that. There is zero chance I'll ever give you that. At the time, I may have been disappointed. At the time, I may have been crushed. At the time, it may have, it may have put me in a spiral of doubt or whatever. But, you know, the fact of the matter is he just knew better than me. And He loves me more than I love me. I've never died to save me. In fact, I've done a lot of things in living that would destroy me. And so have you. Keep trusting that He will bring you to the best outcome. Keep stoking the flames of your faith for the Lord who has said to you, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not trying to hold anything back from you, believer. He rejoices to give you the entire kingdom. You know how you know? He's given you the kingdom. He's given you Christ. That's it. He's all that there is. He joined you to Him so that you can't be separated from the love of Christ. He's given it to you and He rejoiced in doing it. For He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him over for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give you all things? If He gave Jesus on the cross, what do you think He'll hold back from you if it's a good thing? If he's given you a million dollars, when you come and ask for 50 cents, do you think he'll say no? I would hope not. That would be an insane idea. If I gave you a million dollars and Mike, you came and asked me for one, dude, if I've given you the greater, why would I, why would I, ne why would I ever not give you the much lesser? There's no reason. That's illogical. And God's never illogical. 
Jesus asked these men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, the question was not their need. Their need was pretty obvious. They were blind. The question lay on their faith. And just as there was no question as to what these men needed Jesus to heal their blindness, there's no question that all of mankind needs to be touched by Christ. We need Him to heal our sin disease. However, only those whom God grants faith in Jesus can receive the healing touch of the Master's hand. Jesus touches our lives every single day. And I don't care who you are in here, and I don't care who you are listening over the podcast. I don't care. If you're listening, Jesus touches your life every day, all day, constantly. Every day that you wake up, your senses and my senses are bombarded with the touch from His hand. The clothes you're wearing right now, the sun that hits your face, the food that you eat, the laugh of your child in your ears, the health that you enjoy, and everything else good in your life is the touch of Jesus' goodness in your life. And that's true for every Christian, and that's true for every agnostic, and that's true for every professing atheist on the planet. That's true for everybody, period. Because every good gift comes through Christ. All these things come from His hand as He shows you mercy. However, only those who have been given faith can discern these things rightly or receive them as what they really are. Most of the known world wakes up every day and they think the sun came up because of them. It's true. We've all believed that. We might never said it, but we were for for the better part of our young life. We believe that. You ask a six-year-old little boy why the sun came up on Saturday, so I can watch Saturday morning cartoons. We're giggling because we know that's true. That's that's human nature. We think that it's because of us. It's not. We have to have the eyes of faith to rightly discern what these things really are. That's what Jesus meant when He said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Faith is not the lever by which we move God to grant things. It's the hand by which we can receive what He has already chosen to grant. That's where so many people miss it. In the American church especially, we've kind of come to the idea that faith is the idol. Faith is really the God. Faith is a tool that we manipulate God with. Because if you've got enough faith, you can ask God for anything and He has to give it to you. That's not true. That's just not true. That's a lie. And all it does is set you up for failure, for disappointment, and for a jaded heart toward who you thought was God, which was no God at all. That's never been the God of the Bible. He's the God who grants faith so you have something to grab His goodness with as He showers it down on you. We're all that man with the withered hand, the withered arm that has nothing to reach out and grasp with. And Christ says to us, reach out. And as we do in faith, a hand appears so that we can grasp the blessings He's laying in there at the time. That's what faith is. These men proved their faith in the way that they, first of all, answered Jesus. They said to him, yes, 
Lord. Their reply was an affirmation of their belief that he could do what they needed him to do. Catch this. And it was based on who they now realized him to be. The yes and the acknowledgement that he's Lord were tied together. They're inseparable. One works because of the other. When asked, do you believe? They replied, yes. And they were answering him as their Lord. He was their Lord in eternity prior to their reply. And it's only because of this fact that they were given this revelation in the first place. It's only because Jesus had always, in the sovereignty of God, been the Lord of these two men that they even had the faith to see who he really was to them. Everything that we need is granted only due to Jesus' lordship over us. I want you to hear me. Everything that we need is only granted to you and I strictly because of Jesus' position of Lord over us and us under him. That's the only reason. We need deliverance from sin, yes? We need forgiveness. We need to know the love of God. We need repentance and strength and joy and relief from our striving. We need someone to be there that we can always trust in. We need to grow in His Lordship over us. We need so much. And the Bible tells us that all the promises of God find their yes, not in my faith. They find their yes in what? Him. The person of Christ. There is absolutely nothing about me or about you that guarantees any yes whatsoever other than the yes that you will find judgment and wrath. That's the only thing in me and you that gets a yes. But every promise, not every curse, every promise, every good thing, every blessing finds a definite yes in Him. All of our fate is tied to Him. We are only healed of our spiritual blindness to begin with because Jesus was our Lord before we even knew we needed a Lord or we wanted a Lord. When Christ found you, not you found Him. When Christ found you, you did not want a Lord. In fact, I would dare say for the vast majority of people that come to Christ, including the one talking to you. He had to shatter you to the point that you realized you needed someone to save you. And you were in utter terror and you were willing to do give up anything if He would save you. And then over time you realized just exactly how messed up and how depraved you really are and how you really need Him to take you by the hand or take you by the back of the neck And lead you through life and literally tell you every step to make so that you don't bring harm and suffering upon yourself, upon those you love, and upon people that you may never meet. If you look at your life, born again believer, and you backtrack it honestly, you'll see that theme over and over and over. That's how he works. He was our Lord before we knew we needed him. 
It says Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God loved you and He chose you, church, to be in Christ before the foundations of the world. Listen to me. Before you did anything, either good or bad, He chose to love you. And it's only because of this fact that we receive anything, including faith, including repentance, including forgiveness, life, resurrection, peace, joy, assurance, a greater submission to Christ, sanctification, anything. Because we receive these things only through our Lord Jesus. And it's only because He's our King and we are His people that anything we truly need comes to us. So in verse 29, it says, Then He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Now, the faith that Jesus references in this entire conversation with these men is histio faith. And we've talked about that many times before. That's saving faith. That's faith that changes a life. It's not just wonder. It's not just awe. It's not just an acknowledgement. It's true faith of the heart, so to speak. A faith that really has traction in your life. This is saving faith. And he says that they would be healed according to their faith or according to their pistuo faith. And what happened? They were healed. So apparently they had pistuo faith. Sometimes Jesus involved faith in someone's healing, and at other times it seemed to not be a factor. This time he did. And it seems that this was recorded in such a way so as to point out the pistuo nature of the belief of these men, and that might be to caution all of us who have come to saving faith in Christ. What I mean is this, is that Matthew recorded this in such a way that we could recognize that Jesus is talking about pistuo faith if you have pistuo faith, you'll be healed. They were healed. They obviously had pistuo faith. So let's see what happened in the lives of these men after that. Jesus healed these men. He performed a miracle that no one else could perform. Then Jesus gives a command to these men who had acknowledged him as Lord. He told them to not tell anyone about what he had done for them. That seems odd, doesn't it? Seems odd. We would all think the right thing to do, just naturally, would be to do what? Run out the doors screaming like a lunatic telling everybody what had just happened. And sometimes that was permissible and sometimes Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Unfortunately here, these men disobeyed. Usually, this is... Usually what happens with everybody when we read this, usually people will read this text and just kind of take for granted that they would have told everybody about this miracle. You know, that they read it under the pretense. You've probably done it. I know I've done it in my life. You know, before, you know, we, we tend to want to read this under the pretense that Jesus would just be okay with them not obeying this command because, of course, you know, he couldn't fault them for spreading the word about this miracle. You know, it's, it's almost like we kind of take for granted that 
when Jesus said, don't tell them, don't tell anybody, when they ran out and told everybody, Jesus would say, well, you know, I mean, that's really okay because, I mean, you know, that's a good thing. He's tell, they're telling people about me and, I mean, it's such a big miracle. How can I really expect them to not tell anybody? Guys, that's wrong. That's just wrong. When Jesus gives a command, he means it. And it doesn't really matter what it is. When he gives a command, he means it. And it's not up for our scrutiny or our endorsement. In our religious fervor, or maybe even if you're like me, in our pride or sometimes in our laziness, we can often get caught up in doing things that we, as well as everybody else around us, thinks is the right thing to do. And it's just wrong. Like, for example... For decades, and again, the American church, it has been taught from pulpits that to be a good Christian husband meant that you went to work and you came home and you were, quote unquote, the king of your castle. You ruled your house, I'm not going to say oppressively, but domineeringly. You were the king. You came home, sat in your recliner, popped your feet up, your wife brought you your supper on a tray. Right? Anybody raised in that kind of household? Okay, two or three are honest, the rest of you are liars. Alright. So, right. You know, I know who I can trust in here now. So, no, that, that, that's, you know, if you go back, I mean, even on, if you look back far enough, even on television, that was a predominant idea. The father goes off and he works this job. When he comes home, his wife is wearing an apron. She's got flour all over herself. She's waiting on him hand and foot. The kids tippy-toe through the den because, bless God, dad's been working hard on some account at some big firm and he deserves for peace and quiet and everybody just snaps to him and all that stuff. And we completely have missed the idea of how wicked that really is. That as a husband, I'm supposed to, yes, lead my wife and lead my family by loving her and loving them, primarily loving her as Christ loves the church, through sacrificial servant leadership. I lead her by laying my life down for her, not laying my feet up on her. But for decades, the understanding within the church was the former was right, and what I just said was limp-wristed and weak and unholy. Biblical balderdash. So we can get caught up in what we think is religiously correct, but really it's, it's just our opinion. We as Christians need to be sure that we are following the directions of our Lord and not our presumptuous ideas about what he really would want. You know, I remember this is kind of, this is, I feel kind of stupid in bringing this up, but I remember I was, I was in a youth group back in like the 90s, so that's when the WWJD bracelets came out. Anybody remember those? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I never saw a single one that said WWJS or WDJS. What did Jesus say? How about that? It was all up to opinion. What would Jesus do? I mean, what do you think Jesus would do in that instance? It doesn't matter what I think Jesus would do in that instance. What matters is what he said for me to do in that instance. Right? That never caught on a whole lot. WWJD was much freer. It was catchy. It seemed like the thing we ought to do. And that's unfortunately the way most of us kind of live our lives for large swaths of time. Christ intends for us to do what he says. 
He gives clear commands and we must follow them. I'm saying this primarily to the church, those who have been granted that pistuo faith that we're talking about and like these men obviously had. We have to simply obey what Jesus says and not get caught up in our opinions about what service should look like. Now, I'm going to quote somebody. A great man of God once said, The matter which stands between the church and the exalted future, which God has prepared for it and each member thereof, is the Holy Spirit-enabled ability to hear the words of the Bible and the faithful sermon. Though essential, this subject is not complicated or mysterious. And if you missed it, that's a quote from Brother Tony's sermon this morning. Our job is to listen and hear rightly when God speaks and apply it the way he means it. Simple, right? Simple. In verse 32, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Like, literally, as these blind men were walking out the door... It's almost like you get the picture of a revolving door on this house in Capernaum. Not really, but it almost seems that way. As they're walking out the door, this next entourage of, of people are coming in. And as this group is leave, one group's leaving, enjoying sight for the first time, another group's coming in, needing a miracle for Jesus. They had heard of Jesus' miracles. They had come to him for help. Maybe they knew that he could help. Maybe they just hoped that he could help. Maybe they too believe that he was the Messiah? We don't really know. We don't really have enough information there to be sure. In any case, they, they sought him out and brought their demon-oppressed friend to him. And the evil spirit had manifested its presence by causing this man to be mute. And of course, as we said, Jesus cast out the demon and the man spoke. And the word says that, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, again, let's, let's grasp context real quick. In a day, I mean literally in a matter of hours really, a woman with a 12-year disease of uncleanness was healed. A dead girl was brought to life. Two blind men were given sight. And a man made mute by a demon was delivered. That's a lot. I think we could safely say, no, nothing like this had ever been seen in Israel or anywhere else in the entire world. But it was foretold in prophecy. This wasn't unheard of. It had been written down hundreds of years before. In Isaiah 35, the Lord speaks of the coming Messiah who will save Israel. He says in verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The tongue of the mute will sing. Within moments, literally moments, Jesus had just fulfilled so much of this prophecy. What Matthew's pointing out to his Jewish audience who would be well versed in this prophecy is that Jesus was abundantly proving who he was. He was the Messiah. There was no doubt. There could be no doubt. Let me put it this way. There was no legitimate doubt. No justifiable reason to deny his Messiahship. You know, this prophecy in Isaiah, it was about Jesus before the foundation of the world as well as when it was written. Why? Because this 
has always been what Jesus would come and do. It's not that the prophecy was written and then Jesus came and said, okay, I've got to measure up to that. No, He was the measuring stick beforehand. In eternity prior, God had given this prophecy, but He had already established it before He established the universe because this is what Christ would always have come and done. It was always the plan. This prophecy was about Jesus when He performed these miracles because He was God in the flesh. And this prophecy today is still about Jesus because He's still the only one who could ever deliver people from their affliction. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus because He's the only one this could have ever spoken of is the point that Matthew is trying to make and that I'm trying to make tonight. Satan blinds the eyes of men with the allure of sin to keep them from seeing the glory of Jesus. He tries to make everything in this world, other belief systems, your own validity, your own ability, your own superiority, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. He tries to make all these things seem so sparkly and so glittery so that we only have eyes for those things and that following a carpenter who died on a cross and supposedly wrote again just doesn't seem very enticing. He blinds us with gilded things that are really rotten on the inside and we miss the true gold that is Christ. That's what he does. He attacks the hearts of men so that their mouths are full of vain things and they are then too mute to cry out to the Lord and be saved. The Bible says out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks, right? He attacks your heart and he attacks the heart of the world so that we cram in all these vain things, these vain understandings, these vain arguments, these worthless ideologies so that we could never bring ourselves, never humble ourselves, never move ourselves to cry out to the Christ of the Bible. The one who died and rose again and is coming back again. He fills our mouth through, our, through the funnel of our wicked heart so that we are mute and we can't cry out. And Jesus still today heals both problems. He has fulfilled the law for you. He has conquered your sin. And now He delivers you from the attacks of Satan, the lust of the flesh, and the death of your sin. And He does this for us in the same situation as the ones that we have discussed. Jesus healed the woman in the street when? When she was totally unclean and she was unable to even go to the temple and approach God. Worthless. He healed the mute when he was totally under the control of demons. Worthless. He gave sight to the two men when they were completely blind and unable to provide for themselves or offer anything. Worthless. He gave life to Jairus' daughter when she was completely dead and unable to do anything that would impress or draw him to her. And in the same exact way, Jesus saves men and He saves women today not because of anything to do with them, good or bad. I was talking with Brother Kyle the other day and I was thinking on this and I even wrote a little note to myself because I was thinking about my own depravity. I was thinking about how worthless I was and how bad of a sinner I actually was when Christ found me and on any given day without the grace of God, what I, the monster I would be 
without the grace of God holding me back, changing me, sanctifying me, making me more like Christ by His mercy. And I wrote a note to myself, Joseph, and I said this. I said, I believe that Christ saved me because I'm just worse than everybody else. And while I do see myself that way, and I think we should all see ourselves that way, I was wrong when I wrote that note because that's just another condition. Like I could outbad you and that's what attracted Jesus to me. No, that's not true. No, He saved me because He wanted to. He saved you because He wanted to. Had absolutely nothing to do with anything good or bad that you had done or not done. There's nothing that we can do. And there's nothing about us that would draw Him. He saves us because it is literally His good nature to do just that. If you are saved right now, it's strictly because the God of all creation looked at you and chose to love you. And from that second, He wanted to save you. He delighted in saving you. Think of the love of God for you. He looked at you, and when you've done nothing but offend, He wanted to save you. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can look at their enemy and just choose to love that way. He's the only one. Why would anybody not want this God? He's just better. And if you're lost tonight, Jesus will still save you through faith. Why? Because He delights to show you mercy. And that's the best news that anyone could ever give. And that's the best news that anybody could ever receive. And still it's just sad that so many people reject what I just said. Last verse we see in verse 34 as I close. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. These men did not say this because they really believed what they were saying. They knew they were lying. It's as Jesus said in John's Gospel of these men, when they speak, they prove who their father is. They were, fathers of, they were sons of Satan because he's the father of all lies. And every time he speaks, he tells a lie. And when he lies, he speaks in his native tongue. They were lying. They knew they were lying. They had seen enough of his power and they knew enough of the prophecies to know that Jesus was the Messiah. These men who were masters of the Old Testament Scriptures, masters of the Psalms, masters, humanly speaking, of the prophecies and the law, they knew the works that Jesus had done. And they knew, as Nicodemus would say, as he went to Jesus quietly, alone at night, we know that you come from God because no one, no one can do the things that you do unless he comes from God. They knew this. These Pharisees issued such a harsh and, ins a harsh, excuse me, and insane rebuke of Jesus because he threatened what they loved the most. He threatened their system. He threatened their pride and their superiority over others. And he threatened their own spiritual validity. He dared to tell them that they had to accept salvation as a gift that only he could offer by accepting him as their Lord. When they rejected this in favor of a system that depended on their works... And so that they could continue in a way of life that they were comfortable with, 
They rejected the truth. And at this point, their only recourse was to turn to absurd arguments. That's all they had left. When you reject the truth, all you're left with are absurd and idiotic arguments. Jesus would later point out the ignorance of their objection to him in Matthew 12, 26, saying, And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He'd heard this enough. He finally just said, look, guys, what you're not getting is uh, that's kind of stupid. If Satan cast himself out, how does that work? Can you imagine being a Pharisee standing there in front of everybody when Jesus points out the obvious? Talk about the emperor's new clothes. How ignorant do you look? But that's how ignorant we all looked until we embraced the truth. That's how ignorant the world looks. And I say that in love. I'm not saying that bashing anybody. I'm saying, I mean, we were all children of darkness at one point in time. We were all that ignorant. We were all that naked. We were all that exposed and none of us knew it. Those who reject Jesus as the Lord of the universe as well as the only way of salvation are abandoned to useless and foolish arguments and worldviews today. And it's really easy to see. You know, we went, several of us went to uh, the abortion clinic in Jackson yesterday. And if you sit there and you listen to the arguments that pro-choice or you know, abortion advocates make. Um, when you begin to debate the truth against their worldviews and their arguments, you'll notice very quickly that the conversation often just spirals down to nothing more than yelling, childishness, and just flares of temper. That's all, that's all it spirals down to because there is no consistent argument that you can make once you've rejected the truth. There's one truth. His name is Christ. There is one way to know Him. It's the Word of God illuminated through His Spirit. That's it. There's one church. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one life. There's one resurrection. There's one. There's not many. And when you reject that, you're left to insanity. And there can be no consistency. It would be like living in a world where there really was no gravity. How consistent could your life be? You're driving down the road, you hit a pothole. Next thing you know, you're at 40,000 feet and rising. You couldn't plan your day, could you? You drop your shoe, it goes up 12 stories. How chaotic would that be? That's our world without Christ. Every other argument seems ludicrous. And if you're hearing this... You need to know and you need to remember that God created you in His own image. Sin has marred this, but there's still hope. Tonight, if you don't know Christ, then I want you to cry out to Him. Seek Him in faith, knowing that He will heal your blindness. He will correct your useless imaginations. And He will save your soul for eternity. The Messiah has come. And He is walking past you right now. Follow Him. Meet Him. Be healed and be changed by Him. And then continue to follow Him all the days of your life. Amen? And if you're in Christ tonight, stir up your faith. Follow Him wherever He will lead. Don't sit down in the streets ever. Keep following all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You so much for this night. I thank You. Lord, there were some hard things I know that came out. Lord, I, I pray that it was received in the, in the spirit that I, that I tried to offer it, Lord. Um, Lord, none of us can be haughty about this, God. This isn't my truth. This isn't any of our truth. This is Your truth. It's only ours because You've given it to us.
We didn't come up with it. We didn't create it, Lord. Lord, we just, Lord, right now, I just pray for the lost. Lord, I, if there's someone here that's lost or, or if there's somebody that's listening um, over some electronic media uh, later, Lord, I, I'm just, I pray right now, Father, that you would touch their heart. Father God, would you please make uh, this, this message tonight bear fruit that brings glory to your name. Father, I pray that every single person that our Lord and our King Jesus gave his awesome self to die, uh, to purchase out of the bondage of slavery to sin and death and condemnation. Lord, we're just begging you tonight, Father, please give him everybody that he bought and paid for. Father, you know he deserves it. You know he deserves to be glorified that way. Lord, I know that you rejoice to exalt him. Lord, we're weak and we're powerless and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to save anybody, to change anybody's mind about anything but Lord we, we just come to you and we offer this to you tonight and we offer our prayers up in faith believing that you're going to uh, do justice towards your son and that he's going to get all those that he purchased with his blood and Father for all of us that are here tonight Lord I pray that what brother Tony preached this morning Father it was so good it was what we needed to hear Lord I pray that this tied in with it I pray that you'll give a, you'll, you'll stir the coals of our faith God to be able to go and, and do the, the hurtful thing of examining ourselves and see where we're uh, missing the mark of, of total obedience to you in our lives. Lord, expose things in places that we would never look, things that we don't even think uh, could ever be sinful. Lord, show us the, the fallenness of, of ideas that we think are safe and attitudes that we think are safe and habits that we think are safe. Father, you deserve so much more out of us than what we're given. And I just pray right now that you bring revival in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you bring revival in our souls and our minds, Lord. I pray that our study will be lively when we open your word, Father, that you'd speak to us and we'd be moved by God. We'd tremble at your word. Lord, I pray that our prayer lives would be fervent and and, and disciplined and, and dutifully uh, just sacrifice to you every day, God. It'd be a time that we come to enjoy and that it, it, it just uh, invigorates us, Lord, instead of drains us so many times. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, open doors of opportunity for us to go and share the good news of the gospel through our words and through our actions actions and in every other way father and we just we, we pray that you would glorify the name of your son jesus uh through us this little church here father and we, we pray these things uh for the glory of his name and we pray these things in his name father in jesus name amen